Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and really excited. I don't know if that's the right word to say for our guest today. Uh, There's a lot of panic out there, and while we're not going to talk about the virus, we're going to talk about our carcinogens hiding in products that you use most. And what does that cover? Does that cover all the foods we ingest? Does it cover cosmetics, cookware, hygiene products? Are they making us sicker? Well, our guest today, uh, she has firsthand experience because the things that we put on our body may be affecting us negatively. And as a doctor, she had to stop her practice at one time um, as a result of some of the products that she was using that was affecting her negatively. I like to hear more of her story and how she was able to get around that. Her, she's the author of Keep Away from GRAS, Why Safe Everyday Products Are Making You Sick and Simple Strategies to Recover Your Health. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Marcella Popa to the podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on your uh, show. Absolutely. And before we get started, I know GRAS is an acronym. What does that stand for? It's, um, it stands, stands for uh, generally recognized as SAFE, which is the regulating um, agency's term for chemicals that are included in our everyday products that are supposedly safe at the dosage that are um, used. Uh, but I have my doubts. Um, that they are really safe, and um, I, I would like to inform people that they may not be that safe. Sure, and so I'd like for you to talk about, I mean, you are a, a practicing doctor, and what? you were in your, <laughs> or you were, right? Yeah, you yeah. were in internal, internal medicine. Internal medicine, and yeah. So what was the typical day like in internal medicine, and then why did you have to leave your profession? What happened is I developed a um, autoimmune condition, which was not responding to the conventional medications, uh, or I had developed um, very serious side effects that uh, dictated to stop the treatment. And I understand being a doctor, there is so much the medical field can do. I was frustrated, but on the other hand, getting the insight to you uh, from a physician perspective helped me a little bit um, with my frustrations. Of course, I wasn't happy to not be able to find the treatment, but I understood that that's the way things were for me. And I know that other people had some relief, um, but it just wasn't for me. And dragging through days and trying to find more answers, I noticed that um, one of the moisturizer cream I was using, when I applied it to my elbows was making them swell up and that's something that I dismissed I didn't think that was anything more than a coincidence but sooner or later if I repeated the same procedure again a couple of weeks apart I um, I noticed the same thing and what was even funnier is that on two separate occasions a couple of months apart my mom developed um, swelling of her foot and another couple of months later, my mother-in-law developed swelling in one of her fingers. Um, so it was really puzzling for me that, okay, I have a sensitivity. My mom may have the same, although she didn't report it before, or I wasn't close to her to analyze it. But my mother-in-law didn't have any genetic uh, match for me. So it happened to her as well. And as I started to look uh, the creams of what ingredients they're made of and what other products contain the same ingredients, I started to become aware that a lot of them are just synthetic chemicals that do a number on our body. And because they're considered safe, uh, doctors are not trained to take them into account when are included in cosmetic products, but even some of them included in medications as uh, inactive ingredients are um, able to cause some problems. So now, that's how I you, dug into more research. But sure. This starting point. Well, I think the other thing that I want to highlight is, 
you, you were turning 40 at the time, and so you thought it was just something that happens with age. And I, I'm sure many of us do, like, oh, I can't eat the same things that I used to when I was younger. But you're saying it was creams, it was foods, it was everything else. Uh, yes, I didn't really consider, and probably a lot of people don't consider um, any of this um, information while they're healthy. But once you start to feel some problems um, in inabilities to do the same things you used to do, then you start questioning what's going on. And most of the time the answer is that that's what happens, we're aging, but there is more to it than just changing of the um, um, number in front of the, um, <laughs> let's say the big number in front of the decade. So you turn 40, you, you still feel young. Uh, most of us do. Uh, and I, I did the same till I got hit with this um, autoimmune problem. Sure. And so when you looked at the moisturizers, uh, and, and, you, and these are generally recognized as safe, as you said, what is your take on animal research? Because usually, in the, at least for me, in the medical side, there's animal research to determine if there are any side effects and do they go through the same rigorous testing when you're talking about uh, you know, creams or just general foods? Uh, they do some research. The only thing, the only downside I noticed with the, um, uh, some of the chemicals that I eventually blamed on my, uh, my joints um, was the fact that the research was usually done using huge doses, which are not attained in everyday use. Um, and because of the very high dose, eventually they found some um, health problems in animals, then it was considered that at lower doses, it should be okay. Mm. But my, my point is that all these low doses in everyday products, they add up in time. And sooner or later, they, they may have an impact on our health, which is not described or fully understood yet. But one thing that I noticed uh, in the research articles was the fact that people who come to Western world from underdeveloped countries, they develop an autoimmune condition. Some of them, obviously, the, genetic, um, the genetics play a significant role in this, but about 7-8% of people develop a condition that's autoimmune, which those um, syndromes are very, very rare in the countries of their origin. And I do remember being from an um, Eastern European country that in medical school we didn't see autoimmune diseases. Maybe there was such a rare thing, I was actually wondering why do we learn about them. But now, because of the modernized society that um, infiltrated after the um, communists fell, these products are available in every market, in every store, and there are a lot of cases of autoimmune conditions. So the statistics are, are right, I think. That's really interesting, and it makes me think of a, a good colleague, friend of mine at, at, at my old job, he was Indian, and he had going to college here, he lived here for, you know, a long period of time, and he was getting in an arranged marriage. And when he had gone back home to meet his bride in India, they were like, you're, you're so fat. Like, he was <laughs> bone thin. When he left India, you know, when he came back, he, he adapted that Western diet, as, as you're talking about. And it makes me think of, you know, even the concerns we have today with the virus, the main issue was uh, oil, right, because of the ability to travel across the world now, people are getting access to things that they weren't exposed to before and were all being negatively affected. It sounds the same with this autoimmune disease. Yes, yes, of course. Um, the um, community, the international community, has changed tremendously over the last decades and the ability to travel anywhere in the world, obviously it's something that it's good, uh, but it comes with side effects. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that um, a lot of um, spreading of the diseases, infectious or non-infectious, that has to do with um, intertwining of the um, Western world with the Eastern world, with Far East, it's, it's all a mix now. 
with that being said, also, uh, I'm thinking again from the medical side. So when, you, when you're doing research for different uh, drugs and what have you, it's usually eight to ten years that they're doing the study. And so that may be particularly here just in the state. You know, and so you're saying that if everyone's different, which I don't have an argument about, you're saying that some research may never come out because they may say it's great in the States only. And I'm thinking, how would these global companies respond to that? Um, that's a very good question. I, um, I don't know if I have an answer for that, but I can tell you that um, from my um, literature research, uh, certain products, certain ingredients are regulated a lot more strict in other uh, areas of the world, like European Union, Canada has different rules, Australia, Japan, they have more strict rules about uh, what ingredients they allow and the amount they allow in um, in cosmetics and in foods, some of them are more recently banned or they will become banned, like you probably heard of the um, pesticides, uh, chlorpyrifos, which is used um, widely um, in the United States, and I don't think it's going to be banned here um, anytime soon. So I think the um, international community responds different to uh, this type of ingredient, and if they look at different studies from a different angle, they want to be more cautious. Sure, and as an American, I have two sisters that live in, or I had two sisters, one passed away, but Sorry. my uh-huh. other sister, thank you, thank you, uh, they live in, in Europe, and so there were so many, you know, any anything that they bought, it had to be listed on, the ingredients had to be listed on their products, whereas here in the States, it's not as stringent. And why do you think that the, like you said, the international community is ahead of the U.S. as, a, as in regards to giving the, its consumers the educa- making an educated choice? Like if I see all these ingredients, I may not want to buy it, but if they're not shown, I, I'm none the wiser. Uh, as a matter of fact, nowadays, most of the ingredients are shown. Where I don't see them shown um, precisely are, let's say, on the laundry products um, but, um, or some cleaning products. They don't have enough information about um, the specific substance. But a lot of the cosmetics, a lot of the foods um, that's packaged, they do have this information. The only problem is that if the consumers are not aware um, they don't know. They probably assume that if it's on the shelf, I could just buy it. That means it's regulated. I don't need to worry about it. But in reality, the regulations are not as strict as they are in other areas of the world where they, um, they try to protect the consumer uh, consumers better. And I think that the decision to buy a certain product it has to do with its availability. So if it's not there because the regulating agencies in the EU said it's not safe enough, then people are not going to buy it. But if here it's available uh, and it's assumed that it's safe because um, supposedly we are protected by the um, regulating agencies, then a lot of people just shrug their shoulders and they say, well, okay, it's fine. But if it's not there, I'll buy it. And I have some people I talk to, some friends, who are very dismissive of what I have to say because they say um, they have the same vision that if it's on the shelf, I could just buy it. You leave me alone. Plus, it, it becomes a bit tedious to, to make some changes, and people are so used to their routine products, and they just don't want to be bothered. Some. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I'm also thinking of the timeliness of this podcast that I'm speaking with you, while you said some people are dismissive, we are in the environment where there's a global pandemic with the coronavirus, and we're not going to name names because, you know, I don't want to cease and desist letter in the mail or to get our podcast taken down, but one of their responses is a hand sanitizer. And so while I may be dismissive for this moisturizer cream, I'm being told, or there's this perception that this hand sanitizer will uh, – prevent me from getting a virus. And so in the States, I may be okay taking this hand sanitizer, but globally, just like you were saying, some of these ingredients may affect me negatively. 
And I won't know because I'm thinking it's the virus as opposed to a negative outbreak to this product. Uh, well, that's true. That's a good point. The um, use of the sanitizers, um, some of them have, uh, most of the time, it's uh, an alcohol that it's included in them and some additional substances which are more or less um, harmful. But um, it's used probably for a shorter amount of time. Uh, what I describe is what it's not safe is to use them in the long run, like years after years. The other benefit is that a lot of the companies that produce healthier cosmetics, they have their own sanitizers, sanitizer wipes or sprays. So um, I'm not sure how many there are available now to buy either in the stores or online, but they have availability for uh, healthier products, and they, they work just fine in my experience so far. So I have used um, a certain uh, type of a certain brands of um, sanitizers, and I I think they just do a good job. Oh, absolutely, and that actually takes me to my next point because you're talking about you said certain sanitizers, and what I'd like to ask you is I mean, we're looking at companies, and their ma- major goal is one uh, to have a good product, but the other is to make a profit, and so in some respects you may, not you, but companies may cut corners and get a, some, an alternative that may still have the same properties, but it's not the pure properties. So uh, there used to be an argument before Amazon bought Whole Foods that you're spending your whole check, right, versus going to a regular supermarket. So some of these autoimmune diseases or these negative backlashes, is it because companies are cutting costs or making an effort to cut costs and are using inferior products? Uh, it's true that the healthier products are more expensive, but um, one thing that I can't reinforce enough, and I, I want to say this now, and I, I don't want to repeat myself <laughs> throughout the interview, but I could if you want me to. What happens is the healthier products, they may seem more expensive when you look at the price tag, but in, in the long run, you don't spend much more money on them. And I will give an example of, uh, let's say, uh, the lip balm. And we probably, a lot of us are aware that you should start using um, any of the conventional lip balms, then you, the more you use it, the more you need it. I remember I used to have it in my lab coat at work, use it almost like every hour, buy like a package of 10 um, lip balms and go through them in no time. Sure, they are cheaper. They're maybe less than a dollar each. And um, I do see that after I change to a healthier one, I don't have to use it as much. So, yes, it's true I spend $3 and a half on a better uh, lip balm, but then I don't have to use it as much, and it lasts just as long, if not longer, than the pack of the conventional ones, which have uh, petroleum derivatives in them. And what they do, they impair the lips' ability to produce their own moisture. So it's true that occasionally you need to, to use a moisture, especially in the wintertime, um, something um, moisture on your own lips. If men and women, I've seen them in many, uh, many people who have this, this diagnosis the same problem, that the more they use them, the more they're going to need them. So then I said, get rid of those and try this new one that, for me, works great. And see what you think. They love it. They, they love it. It's true. It's a little more expensive um, if we think of the small tube that it comes in, but it lasts way longer. And the same thing applies to, let's say, the new moisturizer I use. See, I used to have to put it on my hands few times a day before. Now, it's every couple of days. It's usually more often um, in the winter, but the box that I have, the jar that I have, although it is more expensive when you look at the price, it lasts so much longer, and it doesn't give me the swelling of my hands. So um, I'm going to go with that, and um, I, I think that's something that people would would have to understand that it's not just the fact that it's more expensive, it's healthier, but it, because it's healthier, it lasts longer. And the same sure. thing applies to shampoos. Um, some people have to wash their hair um, every day because otherwise it gets greasy. Well, some of the ingredients in shampoos, they, um, they dry the scalp, 
then more sebum is produced, and then you have to wash more often. And when I discovered the new products, uh, the healthier products, I could go over a week, sometimes 10 days, uh, without shampooing my hair. And it's not messy looking. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I have to, to, to specify this because a lot of people would be seeing like, hmm, how can you do that? I don't know, hair is stinky or greasy. It's not. It's not. I used to have to wash it every two, three days. Now I could go 10 days without washing my hair. I'm happy. Wow. Wow. And, and in your research, I, I want to ask you that, you're using, uh, and we're not naming names, but let's just say the, the shampoo product, right? So you saw the shampoo product, and it costs more. But what I've seen in, in some stores is they'll have their version. So they'll have the expensive one, and they'll say, well, the store version is the same as the expensive one. Were you able to compare the two? Or do they have the same ingredients, but they uh, produce no, a different not output? Really, uh, no, it's not the same as uh, with medications, uh, where the store has a certain brand, and uh, the brand name is sitting next to it, and it's cheaper. With the cosmetics, it's different, and they have different manufacturers that produce different products. And as a matter of fact, the, the line of product is more limited. So some of them just produce, let's say, creams and shampoo. Others produce lip balm and um, uh, soap. So it's not like you're going to find a wide array of products which are produced by the same brand name. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I don't know uh, if there is an equivalency uh, in between the ingredients, um, but from what I noticed, the um, healthier products do have different ingredients, and I uh, I don't think that there is a, a store product which has the exact ingredients as the brand name as far as cosmetics go. Now, with the let's just I'm just trying. I mean, I guess this turned into a marketing <laughs> conversation now. But I'm, I'm no, sorry, asking. Don't, don't want to do that. <laughs> right. Well, I'm asking because I'm thinking like a, a healthier product versus, let's say, a mainstream product. Well, the mainstream product, they've done the R&D, and they probably have a huge budget for marketing. And so for this lip balm or that shampoo that lasts 10 days, right, it probably doesn't have the budget, and they're probably not exercising social media as much as, say, a major brand. And so this brand that you're talking about, I mean, <laughs> I laughed. So I'm wondering how, how half the people that listen to this podcast, if they're laughing too, they can't imagine not washing their hair for 10 days. Is that the company's product of fault for not getting that information out there? And we just think that that's not even a, a choice. Is, what do you think about that? I um, The company does not indicate how often you should wash your hair. <laughs> the uh, healthier product um, you could use um, as needed. So that's, it's my decision to wash my hair at a certain um, interval based on how it looks, how it feels. But again, um, the company itself says to, um, they have a couple of shampoos and they say to alternate at whichever um, distance in between the uh, hair washing you choose. So I can't say that um, this company specifies, oh, you use it every, every 10 days. No, not, no such thing. It's just a personal choice. Oh, and the other thing that I noticed at the beginning when I, I looked at the shampoo, I said, hmm, this is quite expensive. It, it's so thick consistency-wise that you get diluted, and it does just the same kind of job. The only difference compared to the um, – conventional products, uh, is that the healthier shampoos of, from this particular place, uh, they do not foam. And a lot of people are unhappy about it. Oh, if I don't foam, I don't think that the hair is washed properly. Actually, it does. It does come out very nice and clean and fluffy and looks healthy, and it doesn't have to foam. Foaming is from a chemical that shouldn't really be in the shampoo, and um, that's what's causing... Um, uh, the feel that, oh, if it's not foaming enough, uh, it's, it must not be a good product, but it is. Mm, that's a good point. So I'd like for, for you to take a virtual t- uh, trip with me to the supermarket. And we're talking about generally recognized as safe ingredients. And there's a generalization that Americans will go to the supermarket and shop in every aisle. 
However, people that are outside America, when they go to the supermarket, they just shop on the outside, meaning that's where all the fresh foods are and such. Why do you think there is the perception that uh, those outside the U.S. without even knowing are just healthier, while Americans, I mean, we're told it's generally recognized as safe, so everything in every aisle should be fine to consume? I think that um, a lot of the um, ingredients that are included in the products that you find in the supermarket are not necessarily safe by uh, by the newer standards, but by what I noticed. But um, people from um, outside the United States, when they go shopping, I don't know if they really look inside or outside the store more. I can't say that I noticed that. Uh, I'm not sure where you noticed this, but... Um, Again, there are different products, there are different regulations from region to region, and um, uh, let's say if you want to buy uh, fresh produce and you are um, inside a store or outside a store, I don't really know if that's that much difference as far as um, the safety of the uh, produce you buy, as far as uh, what uh, pesticides they used on them or which farms they came from and how they were produced and packed and delivered. That's a really good point because uh, in my research, the reason why outsiders or outside the U.S. were shopping on the outside aisles instead of the inside aisles because that's where the fresh foods were. That's where the fruits, vegetables, and meats were versus it, the inner aisles have all of the, uh, the food that has potential chemicals in it. Or food is junk food, right? It's food that's not really healthy for you. You may feel full, but you're not getting your daily nutrients. And so, but you had raised that's another right. like point. You refer to packaged foods uh, and processed foods, absolutely. Uh, the, um, the variety is there in the, uh, East, I mean, in the European stores, but I'm not, I'm not seeing, uh, and I didn't really uh, notice people buying a lot of those. Uh, and if they do, they have different ingredients than what we have here. I also noticed the same thing with medications. I went um, and needed um, an antibiotic in Europe. The, the same company produces the same antibiotic here, but the ingredients are different. They're mm-hmm. uh, less um, loaded with um, all kinds of um, inactive ingredients, which is the problem I, uh, I have uh, with. And a lot of time, the medical field would know and deal with the active ingredient in medication, but more and more, we're seeing, we, and I was seeing unusual side effects from a medicine's whose active ingredient was not supposed to cause that. And it's puzzling as a physician because you can't give an answer. The person that you're talking to is frustrated because they have a side effect and nobody could figure out uh, why and where is it from. And eventually it turned out that it was one of the inactive ingredients in um, one of the medicines uh, that um, was prescribed. And the same could go with the -the over-the-counter products. The same can go with uh, prescriptions. And it can be in any form. It could be injectable. It could be in capsules, tablets, uh, pediatric suspensions. They all have, um, let's say, for pediatric suspensions, if we get here, they they need to put a certain flavor, a certain uh, color. All of these are chemical ingredients which are used. And they may cause an allergic reaction. Colors, uh, synthetic colorants could cause it. Um, flavor agents can cause it. So you then you start blaming, oh, I had a reaction from that antibiotic or from that medicine. And you, most of the time we think that it's the active ingredient, when in reality we could look at the inactive one, and I, I noticed a lot of times um, people were complaining to me about uh, some side effects, which the active ingredient was totally unable to do. And then I realized it could be one of the inactive ones, but back then I didn't know as much as I know now, so I couldn't point it out. Sure. Well, you're also making me think of parents that have children that are uh, allergic to gluten, and you have more and more people that are, are that are allergic to gluten, and it seems like until that happens, you're you're giving your children everything, but the food has changed and, and you adjust accordingly. 
So do you see or how do you feel about the future of research that it'll be more uh, personalized uh, because everyone is different? And like you're saying, I may be affected by an inactive ingredient versus an active ingredient. I um, I have to say that when I first came to the United States and started my residency, which was over 20 years ago, the um, celiac disease was very, very rare. We didn't really encounter many people who had it. And um, lately, obviously, it's becoming more and more pronounced. And um, a lot of times, uh, people, patients, people who have no allergic reaction to gluten or nothing that they could point out it's gluten that's causing it, they decide to go on gluten-free diet. And I know functional medicine is very big on this, and um, they advise um, gluten-free as um, avoiding um, an inflammatory um, food product. Um, what I noticed with my literature research, I noticed that a lot of times of the processed foods and even uh, breads, um, if you look at the ingredients in one of the um, uh, on one of the bags that you find in the supermarket uh, for the sandwiches. Um, it's bread that stays on the shelf for such a long time, and it's still <laughs> fresh when you buy it. What's mm. in it that makes it last so long? And even when you go to a bakery, the, um, in order to produce this type of and the variety of breads that they're available, you need certain dough conditioners. Well, some of those, and many of those, I should say, have this um, derivatives of ethylene oxide. Uh, they have polysorbates. So what happens is polysorbate, which was something that is included in numerous processed foods and included also in bread, causes on the intestines similar changes as um, we see in celiac disease. So maybe some people have a gluten intolerance, but some others are intolerant to the additional substances which come along with gluten products. So if you have the genes, absolutely you could develop um, uh, the genetic uh, disease, which is antibodies against certain products from uh, gluten. But um, other people don't have, and they don't test positive for uh, gluten uh, enteropathy, and yet they still cannot tolerate it. And I wondering if this has something to do with what's included in the bread. Were you ever able to, to look at the labels from a bread um, bag of the ingredients? Were you ever curious to, to read those? Well, when you do, you see that it's a lot of stuff that doesn't sound like a food uh, product. It's all <laughs> additives. It's all... Um, um, components, chemical components that would make it be fluffy, would make it last longer. Yet, I I don't think that's that's a healthy thing to buy. Yeah, it's really interesting when I I think of my sister again uh, that lives in Europe. She shops daily, and she always laughs when she comes here. Uh, not even just bread, just for across the board, even fruit. Right, like if she when she buys it there, it it's life may be one, two, three, four days, right? But if you buy an apple here, <laughs> that apple may last for a couple of weeks. And so uh, I think what you're saying is if we can't pronounce the ingredients, then we shouldn't buy it as it relates to food especially. Uh, yes, if you if we see a lot of um, chemical names uh, on the uh, on the food packaging, um, I, I don't think that that's a good idea to to use that product. And it's not only that um, these ingredients are causing, um, let's say, uh, increased appetite, or um, um, they some of them through their contaminants may be linked to cancers, but it's also a matter of um, messing up the intestinal flora, which is uh, lately being explored is r responsible for uh, a lot of the um, conditions that um, were not really um, uh, taken into account before is related to the um, uh, uh, microbiome of the um, intestines. Mm. You, you are also, it makes me think of, of corn syrup. And there's always what, been the argument of corn syrup. Yes, yes. High and fructose that's corn in, syrup, yep. High fructose corn syrup is in everything. And I, I binged on watching the 
the TV show Hunters on Amazon just recently, and it was scary of how they were using introduce. This is in the if you haven't seen it, it's uh, the the setting is in the 1970s, and they were introducing the public to corn syrup, and then they were saying they were doing that to to kind of control the masses uh, because it was negatively affecting their bodies. But then you, um, outside of that TV show, more and more people knew about high fructose corn syrup. And so you have companies that say, yes, this product doesn't have high fructose corn syrup, but they may have a derivative that the masses aren't aware of yet. So what is your take on this? It seems like a cat and mouse as to let's introduce this to the public. Oh, they found us out, and now we need to switch the game plan. Yes, I understand the um, the concern um, about naming um, with a chemical that it's um, not really known and replacing it with something. I mean, you, replacing a chemical that people know that they have to avoid and or, or an ingredient because uh, high fructose corn syrup is not really a chemical, but um, replacing it with something else on the on the label, it's. It's confusing, and if you don't see it there, um, what happens a lot of times on the front of the product, you see no high fructose corn syrup, no um, uh, low fat or um, no trans fat. Yet, mm-hmm. um, a lot of other um, uh, names come into play when you actually look at the small print uh, on the ingredients list. And I think um, the best approach to that, uh, although that's a difficult one, is to avoid processed foods um, altogether as much as possible. I realize that at times it's not possible, but my my opinion and what I try to do uh, for my family is to, no matter how boring the food is, I go with the same stuff that's easier to cook rather than buying all kinds of uh, frozen dinners or other products that will make it uh, more and more um, appealing, yet in, in, by the same token, it's not a, a healthy dinner or a healthy meal. And sometimes there are situations when you can't be so strict um, about what you eat, but for the most part, if we, uh, if we do that, I think that that's a healthier habit. Oh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I wish I knew her name, but I have to give a shout-out to this lady, <laughs> this beautiful young lady at the supermarket. She was She's one of those uh, vendors that, you know, you give out samples of stuff, right? And so she's an older lady, and I was walking by with my card, and I was going to try some, I don't know, some meat chip or something they had, and she, <laughs> she yelled at me. She didn't know me from Adam. And she looked at my cart and was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, are you trying to kill yourself? And she walked me around the store and, like, took everything out because she was highlighting, she wasn't like you are, an ingredient reader. And she was just showing, like, half of my cart had so much sodium in it that it was just, like, things I didn't even think about, like cereal or, uh, or you know, like you were saying, those frozen dinners have a lot of preservatives and sodium in it that's slowly killing you. So, um, so we've identified trans fat, sodium, polysorbate. Are, are there any high fructose corn syrup? It seems like there's a list that uh, we should be aware of. And is there, can you contribute to that list? Or I know everyone's just not going to go back to eating tree bark. Uh, sure, sure. No, we have to, to be um, realistic about this. So um, if we have um, um, emulsifiers in food, polysorbates and um, uh, this ethoxylated monodiglycerides are like the big two. But um, um, the, they're also using something that's called defomers, which is not only used in breads, but it's also used in the wine and beer industry. So, um, and the funniest thing is that this product, this ingredient, I should say, are included in um, foods which we think of as um, healthy. For instance, uh, low-fat cottage cheese or fat-free cottage cheese or um, pickles or uh, condiments or um, uh, salad dressings. Especially if it's low-fat, creamy salad dressing, it's very likely that it's going to have an emulsifier in it. Now, a lot of the products that I noticed that had polysorbates, now they use carrageenan, which is an emulsifier from seaweed. 
But that is also associated with possible um, gastrointestinal problems, with ulcers, with um, irritation. So um, a lot of times you, you're not going to see the, um, the chemical uh, version of it, but um, some of the plant versions we have to be careful because they're not, depending on how they're obtained and what exactly they could do, um, we cannot say those are 100% safe. Um, and, of course, we're all aware of the plant ingredients causing allergies. Peanut allergy is uh, out there. And um, if you have um, um, worked in the garden, you got poison ivy. That's an allergic reaction from, um, from a plant. So we have to be careful um, and take into account the information that we could gather. And, again, um, if it's a little too hard to figure out what each ingredient on the, on the label is, probably going for fresh um, whole foods uh, type of um, uh, product is the safer way to, to deal with this. Sure. And um, it, it also makes me think of what you were saying for um, before, we, before we had actually gone live, I, I was thinking about the coronavirus and the response to it. And uh, worst case scenario, people will need to stay home and if they're staying home, they're not going out eating fast foods, but they may also rely on a ton of canned food items. And aren't those usually the primary suspects for having a lot of these different um, <laughs> ingredients that you've hi- highlighted with the polysorbate and diglycerides in them? Um, they might. Some of them um, um, do. Some of them don't. But canned foods, unless it says on it BTA-free, uh, they're usually lined with a uh, resin that's um, supposed to keep the can from um, rusting. So BTA is um, the short for bisphenol A, and it's a hormone, uh, estrogen-like uh, hormone that we put in our body if we, use, if we used canned foods or canned drinks. So it's not um, it's not a good idea to use uh, canned food as far as I could tell, I try to buy stuff in a jar. Like if it's a glass jar, I'm happy with that. I'll buy it. You you said estrogen, so that stood out for me that a lot of young men or growing boys are getting access to a lot of estrogen, or they may have a lot of estrogen based off of their diet, and they may not even know that that's negatively affecting them as well. Are there different foods that you could highlight that have greater estrogen than others? Um, the canned foods, um, as I said, have this uh, BTA, which is a strong estrogen uh, mimicker. Um, but if you um, want to cook food in, um, in the nonstick cookware, um, that particular, um, what is the, the chemical name? It's um, perfluorinated chemicals. Um, the... Um, they also have an estrogen mimicking uh, capacity. So yes, you have your organic um, uh, vegetables that you um, you want to saute in a in a Teflon pan or any other brand of uh, nonstick cookware. That's that's a problem uh, as far as um, estrogen. And this um, is one of the uh, chemicals that doesn't leave our body or the environment. It's very resistant. So um, it's not like you cook once and you're fine. It, 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 you're, we're probably exposed to those in, um, since childhood or even before we were born because of uh, whatever um, our moms used to, um, to cook the food in. So um, that's another um, ingredient that's an estrogen mimicking. And it's also um, similar uh, products are used in, uh, let's say, um, a similar ingredient in fast food wrappers. Uh, hamburger wrappers or any other container for uh, fast food has this um, perfluorinated uh, chemicals which are lining up the um, container so that's why the grease doesn't drip and you a lot of people eat this and they think they're fine or they know that they're not that fine as far as the food quality but nobody really takes into account the the wrapping and the same thing goes for microwave popcorns. They have um, a similar chemical, um, which is this uh, PTSE, or the, um, the paper cups. 
the the reason why you get a coffee and it's not you know leaking out is because the cup on the inside it has a very fine um, lining of um, something similar to Teflon, but um, it's not really Teflon, uh, but it's the same chemical that the uh, that, that was used to make Teflon. So there are a lot of um, uh, estrogen like uh, around us, and they're also in um, not much more in foods, um, but there are in the containers and in the cookware. So um, a lot of us um, are very um, easily using plastic to um, um, wrap up the foods or to keep it. And certain uh, type of plastics have um, estrogen-like in them, like plastic with um, recycling code number three. Like when you see those chasing arrows, there is usually a number inside in that triangle. Yes. Um, yeah, number three and number seven usually have um, a combination of um, estrogen-like uh, chemicals. And wow. uh, aluminum, uh, aluminum container, aluminum foil, it's also, um, aluminum it's classified as a metalloestrogen. So it, it's a lot of attention that we have to pay not just on foods, but also on the um, how we cook and how we store our uh, foods. Sure. <laughs> I'm scared to even ask you this last question, but or this next question, but many people are walking around with plastic bottles drinking water, and I know that um, there was some alarm for if you left it in your car and the car is hot, they said don't drink that water anymore, but how, what significance are we are we affecting our bodies by drinking bottled, I mean, plastic uh, water and plastic bottles? Yeah, well, I uh, I totally agree with that. Um, not leaving your uh, bottle and not drinking from a plastic uh, a bottle unless it's absolutely necessary. I usually carry my own glass bottle in the car. I have it for when my son goes somewhere and uh, he needs his own glass bottle. And um, a lot of times, like when we go on a short trip, if I don't find, uh, if we stop somewhere and um, I don't find a glass bottle, I. I I don't go crazy about drinking occasionally from a uh, from a plastic bottle, but um, my son is usually very sharp with this and says, "Oh, mom, what are you doing? You're poisoning yourself." <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I try to avoid that because of the um, the fact that um, uh, the plastics. Um, the way they are produced, they don't have um, a chemical binding in them. It's more like a lining, and um, that could leach into the um, a product that's inside that plastic bottle. Um, and that's not just water. If you buy um, um, dressing, ketchup, anything that's in a plastic bottle, um, depends on how is it stored, how is it um, moved from place to place, and if, uh, as just as you said, if you light or heat. Um, uh, falls on it, then um, there is leaching of some of the materials that the the plastic um, and there's also a metal that's called antimony, uh, also used in the manufacturing process. So I think the same uh, applies. Um, and a lot of times I heard the um, comment that plastic uh, bottles are uh, with water are just regular water being filtered. So I might as well. Um, buy uh, my own filter, use my filtered water, and um, if I don't have a choice, then occasionally I could drink from a plastic bottle. But that that's the exception, is not the rule. Wow. So what if I'm drinking from a glass, I'm drinking water out of a glass, but I'm using a plastic straw? Um, the plastic straw does not stay into that drink a long time. I think the plastic straw is also made usually from a plastic that's called plastic number five, which is uh, safer for humans, uh, but it's bad for the environment. So mm -hmm. um, the plastic, as long as the uh, the problem with the uh, products contained in a plastic um, uh, container is uh, related to how long have they been in there and what other environmental um, effects like sun exposure or heat exposure have on them. So if you drink from a bottle and you put, uh, or from a glass bottle and you put a plastic straw as you do it, uh, I think we're safe. Sure. I, I was just tongue-in-cheek, but uh, it made me want to give a shout-out to the mayor of, or the former mayor of San Francisco because, like you said, it's impact on the environment, and I know that they made uh, – it was a permanent 
rule that they couldn't use plastic bottles in any government office, right, because mm-hmm. it goes out to the ocean or it, it can't get broken down. So, yeah, no, you know, it's good for the environment. For environment. Um, and even the, as I said, the uh, straws with plastic number five usually made of uh, are somewhat safer. Uh, for humans, uh, it, they're terrible for the environment. I know in, I think, by now in European Union are banned. Uh, I'm not really sure um, uh, time-wise if it actually happened or there was just a discussion that's going to happen very soon. Yeah, that's huge. And uh, um, the other thing is that uh, a lot of, uh, speaking of plastic water bottles, they found um, plastic filament in, um, in the bottles. So, and surprisingly enough, that's not the um, chemical um, component from the bottle itself, but it's from the top. The, um, and um, <laughs> funny enough that um, the same um, idea about um, poly, but the top is made of something that's called polypropylene, which is the plastic number five to make it easier for listeners. But... What I did uh, notice is that uh, a lot of the vitamins and medications are included in something that's called um, vegetable capsules, which Mm -hmm. vegetable capsules are cellulose, which is um, reacted with this polypropylene. So that's something that we use a lot in supplements. I see it all over the place. The chemical name is hypromellose, and sometimes it's written in between the brackets, but it's it's also a version of plastic just because it's half plastic and half uh, cellulose um, that doesn't make it uh, a vegetable capsule. But um, a lot of times we're concerned about the plastic filaments which are made of polypropylene, yet we use the vegetable capsules which are cellulose reacted with polypropylene, and we don't know exactly what happens in our body. We hope that they go out, but... (laughs) We don't know. From the digestive tract, they, uh, they could be broken down. Some other things could happen. So I, I prefer to um, open up my capsule, sprinkle the content on, um, uh, on juice or water, and um, use it this way, obviously, if the uh, content is not um, tasting horrible. Wow. So you're saying there's going to be a, a, a trend to go towards, especially in the vitamin space, I mean, that's a huge space, that uh, more people are going to go into – powders, which I'm assuming people got into capsules because they didn't want that, like you said, that nasty taste. Yeah, no, what happened is a lot of times, um, or prior to this vegetable capsules, um, they were using gelatin capsules. And because a lot of people are vegetarian or they just have this um, aversion towards gelatin, they decided to make the um, so-called vegetable capsules from cellulose and this polypropylene. They're actually two types of capsules um, which are made entirely from um, vegetable sources, but um, the most common ones are not. uh, And as I said, you could see the chemical ingredients in brackets um, after they say cellulose capsules, they come up with this chemical name after it. Uh, Most of the time they do. And uh, a lot of times the manufacturers, because they know of the consumer's uh, preference towards um, avoiding gelatin capsules, they switch without notifying anybody. And um, I I happened to see um, um, this on uh, one of the capsules that I was taking. And ever since, I decided, you know what, I'll just open it and sprinkle the content. And with most of the supplements, you could do this. There are just very few prescription medications included in capsules where you're not supposed to do this maneuver. But um, for the supplement, it's probably uh, easily done if um, whatever you're taking, uh, it doesn't taste horrible. Sure. You've been so enlightening in in this podcast. I I have to ask you, since it is topical and it's on top of everyone's mind, about the coronavirus globally and some of the uh, some of the suggestions are to wash your hands and don't put your hands in your face or pick your nose. I mean, these seem pretty obvious, but I guess we have to be reminded of of good hygiene. I wanted to get your take on hygiene and how it's affecting uh, everyone with the the, uh, virus, uh, not paranoia, I don't want to say that, but uh, just the awareness of the, the virus and contracting it. Yes, it's uh, it's a legitimate um, reason to be more careful, um, and I think that um, 
washing your hands for like 20 seconds, which is the standard way to wash your hands anyway. Nobody really does it. But now with this coronavirus, probably it's a better way to uh, to make sure that no germs are staying on your hands. Um, don't touch your face. Don't touch your nose or discard and discard any tissues that um, – you used to blow your nose, that's another, and then wash your hands afterwards, that's another thing to do. And if you're in a setting where you cannot uh, wash your hands, uh, hand sanitizers are something, either wipes or uh, a gel, it's something that we could use, and um, I don't know how much um, availability there is now for this kind of product, but uh, I think that that's a good way to um, to minimize uh, the chance of getting infected and or spreading the disease to to others. There was ridicule to, towards some of these hand, hand sanitizer companies on Amazon because they're gouging, and Amazon would kick them off if they just had a price gouge. But they're you know doing backdoor or getting around it by including it in shipping. So it may be like a $5 hand sanitizer, but it's $400 in shipping. So, you know, shame on you companies that are yeah. taking advantage. Really, that's horrible. I, uh, yeah. I come across something like that because I, uh, I just so happened that I have hand sanitizers um, in the house, and mm-hmm. I didn't need to buy any um, any as of now. Uh, I'm sure they're, uh, <laughs> the stocks are down uh, in the stores or even online. You can't really buy um, anymore. But there's always soap. And um, you could make your own um, um, towel, I think, that, you know, you wet a paper towel and you put some soap in it, and then you use it later on. Um, put Stick it in a bag that doesn't allow it to dry. And um, I think that's an option. Um, but it doesn't have to be hand sanitizer. Soap, it's probably um, just as good, if not better. Uh, and um, the other thing is that when you're told not to touch your nose and not to touch your face, I think a lot of people have the tendency to to do it more. It's just yeah. like one of those things when you're not allowed to do something and you have a tendency to, to do it um, because um, uh, uncontrollably, obviously. But uh, that's one of the things that uh, if we can't control, then you have to wash your hands more, and uh, then they become dry, so you've got to be careful what moisturizer you put on. <laughs> well, I like what you said about the sanitizers in that you, it can't, you can't have prolonged use. So you may start today, but you can't use it ad nauseum, can you? I mean, it's going to uh, take away from its effect if you're using it constantly. Won't your body get immune to it? I don't think so. I mean, the sanitizer is supposed to just get rid of the germs on your body. Um, mm-hmm. But if it dries out too much uh, your skin and you get like a breakdown of the skin barrier, that's that's not good. So uh, I think uh, you just have to uh, use it in moderation in, as needed and not um, uh, obsessing with that. But it has to be uh, used and it has to be uh, properly uh used so this way we uh, protect ourselves and we protect the ones around us sure and we and unfortunately we only have an hour podcast we've covered a lot but there's so much more to cover and keep away from gras why safe everyday products are making you sick and simple strategies to recover your health where can people find out more information about that to pick up the book or to speak with you directly about questions they may have after listening to the podcast I have a website that's called drpopaslist.com, uh, which is D-R-P-O-P-A-S-L-I-S-T.com. Um, and the book is available on Amazon. And I have a, a contact form on the website, and I welcome anybody who wants to, to hear more or to have specific questions. I'll be more than happy to, to answer for them. Do you, my last question is on your Facebook or your YouTube channel, do you actually go or have you thought about going to the store and having it videoed where you're reading ingredients? I think that would be a huge help where it would, you know, it, it may be overwhelming just in some of the things that we talked about and like, what's the next step? Do I not eat anything? Whereas if I watch you on video actually reading and this is the reason why I decided not to buy this product, I think it would be helpful to the community if that's, you're not doing uh, it already. Yeah, that's one of the plans I have to um, to post some videos on my um, Facebook page, which is also 
uh, Keep Away from Grass, that's the name of it, and to post them on, on my website. And I, um, I plan to do that because a lot of people told me that, you know, when I look at the book, it sounds so overwhelming, but when you tell me, when you spell it out for me, it's so much easier. It sounds doable. I, I, I looked at the book before, and I talked to you, and when I just read the book, or just look at the um, certain information that I was interested in, it's, it seems overwhelming. But now that you're telling me, don't do this, that, and the other, it's so much easier. So I, uh, I plan to, to post these uh, videos uh, on my Facebook page and uh, on my website. Well, we definitely look forward to that. So you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza and Dr. Marcella Popa. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Let's stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show, and um, look forward to, um, to hear any questions or uh, to, to read any questions, I should say, from uh, people who listen to the podcast and um, they have additional um, concerns. Awesome. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you.